It is early Monday morning in Adama, Ethiopia. The distant thunder growls its approach in the failing darkness. Slow rumbles shake the city. Kodak flashes pop in the room, visible through sleepy, closed eyelids. Soon, the water is falling in steady waves. It is the rainy season in Ethiopia. Normally, the Adon breaks the darkness and wakens the sleeper. The Muslim's call to prayer is a heavy drone. It echoes over the city and it demands the faithful seek their God, but it promises in vain, and the obedient seek only to find emptiness. This morning, I wonder if the Imam is happy that his audience has been given a warm-up act. Surely, now he is going to be the main attraction, even at this early hour. Or maybe, now he's just jealous that he cannot compete with God's effortless theatrics. The rain is pounding. The Lord will slay him with the breath of his mouth, Second Thessalonians. It's not hard for God to show his strength. The pouring rain is a glimpse into the heavenlies where this morning we are given a reminder of who is truly king. I wait long for the loudspeaker to blare its pre-dawn reveille. It seems to be late to the party. No matter, the true children have already heard their father's voice, and he knows them. In the end, I never hear the call. Maybe it was there, but it was drowned in the thundering deeps. The voice of lies has been washed away for the day. We come this morning to our third of three psalms this summer on God's covenant love and about God himself as the source of our rejoicing. There are times when we cannot find the strength to revel in God. There are times when our soul knows no joy, but there is never a time that we cannot exult in the Lord if we choose because he ever sits on his throne, sustaining his universe, working his purpose, keeping his own, all those who hope through Christ alone. And sometimes, just sometimes, the Lord will give us a glimpse of that glorious rain, like pouring rain washing away the lies of our world. May he give us that kind of a glimpse as we come this morning to Psalm 97, and if he wills, may he grant us throughout the course of this week to see with our eyes and our spirits our Lord who reigns, so that, me, so that we might rejoice. Rejoice that your God reigns is the message of Psalm 97. Join me and let's read, starting in verse 1. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let the many islands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him, and he burns up his adversaries round about. His lightnings lit up the world. The earth saw and trembled. The mountains melted like wax at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. The heavens declare his righteousness, and all the peoples have seen his glory. Let all those be ashamed who serve graven images, who boast themselves of idols. Worship him, all you gods. Zion heard and was glad. 
and the daughters of Judah have rejoiced because of your judgments, O Lord, for you are the Lord most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Hate evil, you who love the Lord, who preserves the souls of his godly ones. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown like seed for the righteous and gladness for the upright in heart. Be glad in the Lord, you righteous ones, and give thanks to his holy name. Psalm 97, rejoice that your God reigns. First, what the psalmist establishes in this chapter is that God reigns as king and all the earth trembles. God reigns as king and all the earth trembles. The theme of the whole psalm is given as the introductory, the topical sentence at the very beginning of the chapter. Verse 1, the Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many islands be glad. And then he's going to talk to us about that reign. He is going to say, we can rejoice because God reigns. And then he's going to invite the believer in to meditate on that reign, to meditate on that one who sits on the throne so that it might woo us to rejoice in him. He tells us several things about the reign of the Lord. Starting in verse 2, clouds and thick darkness surround him. He tells us first that the Lord is unapproachably holy. Clouds and thick darkness that cannot be seen through, can't be approached. Clouds are often used in scripture, often just a, a manifestation of the glip, a glimpse of, of, of God's inscrutability. We can't fully understand him. We don't know him at a glance. He knows all things. He knows all eternity. He knows everything that there is, was, and will be all at one time because he is infinite. He never learns. We, on the other, on the other hand, will, if we know him, get to spend all eternity learning about his glories and goodness. And at the end of 10,000 years, we will not yet have begun, will we? Clouds and thick darkness speak about how we cannot simply charge unbidden into his presence. There was a cloud on the top of Mount Sinai when the people came after their great, great deliverance from slavery. And God came and manifested himself and only Moses was bidden to draw up into that cloud. The Lord, by a cloud and a pillar of fire, led the people through the wilderness so that every day his very presence was manifest in front of them for 40 years. When the Lord Jesus was there at the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John were, were surrounded by a cloud, and out of it came a voice, this is my beloved son. The cloud is a picture of God's surrounding holiness that cannot be fought through on our own. What we find immediately in verse 2 about the reign of this God is that he is an, an unassailable, inscrutable king. No one understands him. No one can draw him close. There, there is no playing king of the hill with Yahweh. There's no shoving him off. No one will dethrone him. And then verse 2 goes on. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. After speaking of him as unapproachably holy, we are told that he is perfect in his character. Righteousness is that God is true in all that he is and justice is that God does what is true in all that he does so the very 
character of God in his being and all of his doing. Not only are they perfect, but what the verse says is that they are the very foundation of his reign. You see, God reigns and rules because no one else ever could. He is true. He is right. He is perfect in everything he does. Could you fight your way through the cloud and try and shove him off? Good luck with that because you would have to be of a far sight better character than him to sit on that throne. And no one else ever is or thankfully needs be. No one will ever dethrone him. Though nations rage, though men blaspheme, though liars deceive, though power brokers subjugate, though rulers steal, though the arrogant grow hard-hearted, yet no one can assault his stronghold. No one can approach his presence. No one will ever deter his purpose. He is unapproachably holy and perfect in character, and that character requires his eternal reign. He holds all things together by the word of his power, Hebrews says. His very being in the universe and over the universe keeps it together. If he ceased to reign, everything would cease to be. He must reign because he is true. And everything that is true or is good or to some small degree has some, some merit to it is because ultimately righteous and justice are the foundation of his throne. Because he and who he is stand behind all things. Little girls climbing trees in the park. The smell of the mountain air after a rain. Steam on your face in the morning from a warm cup of tea. Lying quietly in bed in the first light of dawn. If any manner of good is to be found in any of these things, it is because righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne and everything else that is to any degree good is just a tiny glimpse into the eternal goodness of God who sits on the throne and stands behind and reigns over everything else in the universe. All those other things are just meant to draw us up to him, to make us thirsty and point us back to him. And we're just in verse 2. He is unapproachably holy, and his perfect character requires his eternal reign. Third, he is pure. We find this in verse 3. Speaking of his reign, fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries round about. There was fire there when Moses came to the burning bush. A picture of his purity, of he consuming everything else that is not worthy. And so Moses had to be careful, having by curiosity stumbled into the presence of God. The Lord said to him, Moses, back up and take off your shoes, buddy, or you might get burned because you're standing on holy ground. Our brother Jeremy reminded us this morning that the table when we share communion, is a table for sinners. Praise God that he is the purity of fire that can purify our dross, that can burn off our impurities. We come having many, many things that are dark and seedy and corrupt, and yet he purifies. And so for him, it's an easy thing to welcome sinners to his presence. 
It's not a difficult thing for him to bring us into his presence because he has already paid for all the punishment necessary in his son. Not only is his purity in verse 3, but also we see that he is unequaled. His fire goes before him and it burns up his adversaries round about. He has no rivals. We said before, none can shove him off the top of the mountain. None can have the, the worth to sit in his place on the throne. But beyond that, even if there were those who might rouse themselves up, it's no contest. He is a fire that consumes his adversaries all around him. The gods of Egypt learned this, didn't they? They were overthrown. Remember how God just through the plagues basically made fun of every one of the Egyptian gods. Oh yeah, that grasshopper God, he's tough. Watch this. You got a frog God, watch this. Oh, the Nile, the very river, which is the source of your life and your people worship it. Let me defile your entire river with blood. What about day and night? I'll give you a plague of darkness. What about hail and fire from the sky? What about life itself? Do you have a God over light? a God of the ninth, a God who gives light. I'll mock every one of them, and I will prove to you that there is no other God. I consume them. Maybe just pause and consider Egyptians, that Yahweh might be the only king in all the universe. Nebuchadnezzar learned this as well. The king of Babylon, having conquered the people of Yahweh, feeling probably, I think my gods are tougher than their gods. I think I'm tougher than anything they've ever known. I've won. I've overthrown them. I've drawn them away. And now I rule over God's people on the earth. And one day standing on his wall, he exalted himself. And the Lord said, yeah, I think that's bad enough. Why don't you chew grass for a while? Why don't you wander around on all fours and let your fingernails and toenails grow to the point where you're uh, disgusting to those around you until you learn that there is a king in heaven and it's not you. Nebuchadnezzar would be returned to his senses and he would say there is a God in heaven and I've met him and it ain't me. What about Herod in the book of Acts who exalted himself and wouldn't give glory to God so the passage in Acts says that the Lord um, struck him down and that he was eaten by worms and he died. I, I always laugh whenever I read that passage and I go back and I reread it again and I think, in that order? Like he was struck down and then he was eaten by worms and then he died? That's the way it's written. I don't think it had to happen in that order. I think the point is the utter subjugation of Herod before the eternal God when he would not bow his knee and he says, you'll be eaten by grubs, buddy. And it's going to happen like that. He has no rivals. He burns up his adversaries round about. And so the child of God has reason to rejoice. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Verses 4 and 5 go on and tell us <clears throat> about how he commands lightning and about his commanding presence. First, verse 4, his lightnings lit up the world, the earth saw and trembled. By the way, some debate uh, this Hebrew, it's hard to know if it should be translated in the past tense or the present tense, 
doesn't really matter because at the end of the day, it's meant to be a vivid depiction that we are to see with our own eyes. So I'll translate it as such. I think better is his lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt away like wax at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. God commands lightning. That's the kind of power that he has. One of the most powerful forces in all of nature, right? 300 million volts, 30,000 amps. The current in your household is about 120 or 220 about 15 amps, 300 million is a lot. God says, hey, over there. And the lightning says, yes, sir. What would you like me to do next? He who created light, he who spoke and brought light itself into existence now commands every lightning wherever he would have it to be. And then we see his commanding presence. The earth saw, the earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax at the presence of the Lord. Nature is, is induced to a visceral reaction at the very presence of God himself. Remember, remember Peter on the boat seeing Jesus and falling on his face and saying, depart from me for I am a wicked man. He saw Jesus and he knew and he fell on his face and he said, I can't even stand in your presence. And that's kind of what the earth does and what the mountains do. That's what the creation does. It doesn't have emotion, but it melts away in the very presence of God. There is nothing in your life that you have ever known more firm or more stable than the earth, more solid more consistent than the mountains, right? You, you've never known anything more solid than that. Everything else you've ever built, you built upon the earth. So it was some deduction of the stability of the earth, right? You've never known anything more so. And yet when God shows up, these shake and they melt because they know their maker and they are quaking in the awesomeness of his very presence. The good news is, the Lord says, one day I'll roll up this ball of the earth, I'll burn it with fire, and I'll destroy the heavens, but I'll make a new one. Because stability does not come from what I've made. Stability comes from me. The Lord reigns. And let the earth Rejoice. In days of great adversity, in days of great fear, let his commanding presence command your attention. Choose to turn and look at him. Pray your way, meditate your way through this psalm is one glorious way to do it. The psalmist not only gave us a command, he gave us all the means to accomplish the very command that the spirit would have for us to do. Fixing on his commanding presence, let your affections be wooed. Let yourself find that whatever bitterness or fear, whatever dif difficulty or worry, whatever insurmountable, overwhelming circumstance in which you may find yourself, find it swallowed up in the presence of the God who makes the earth shake. 
from the days of success, from the days of relief. In the days of, well, I'm glad that's over. We did it. We're done. We accomplished it. We made it. Should you do any different? No, in those days, let his commanding presence ground you. Let it woo you and refocus you. Lest you think, I've made it, and what do I need? I'm here, and I stand upon my merits. I can rest on my laurels. I'm good. And on that day, the Lord says, the very earth upon which you stand will quake when I show up. So look to me. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. The next revelation is not just a derived picture of God's character. It is a direct revelation of God's character. We see his character derived by clouds and thick darkness and derived by the fire and by the lightnings and by the quaking. But then in verse 6 come the heavens and they talk. In fact, there are several places in Scripture where we learn that the skies and the celestial bodies can speak. The heavens declare his righteousness and all the people have seen his glory. The universe is created in such a way to speak something to those creatures whom he put upon this planet. Some say the universe is so huge, it is so fast, so, so vast. They're, they're obviously, just by, by sheer probability, there has got to be a lot of life in a lot of places on a lot of planets because there are just a whole lot of planets. I mean, we're talking like billions of trillions of quintillions, right? Well, if you want to have fun with math, uh, talk about those large numbers compared to the infinitesimal numbers of the fraction of the possibility of what it takes for everything to be perfectly balanced in a planet that is just the right distance at just the right tilt, moving at just the right speed from the sun, and about, I don't know, 86 under other details of temperature and chemicals and whatever of atmosphere that even make this place livable, and you decide. End of the day, the point is that the purpose of the universe is not meant primarily to cause us consider the question of whether there's life anywhere else. Rather, the vastness of the universe and the tininess of our place in it are ever ready to declare to us the magnitude of our God. So that we look out as far as we can see, as far as we can send the Hubble, as far as we can bounce radio waves or light waves, or I don't even know what they bounce this day, off of stuff way out there so we can get some sort of a picture of it when it comes back. And the Lord says, you guys haven't even scratched the surface, man. Just keep looking because I put it all out there. And you know what the psalmist says in Psalm 8? It's God's finger work. It's just the tiny little stuff that he made. It's just, I wasn't busy today, so I thought, eh, I think I'll make the universe. All right, cool. Gabriel, what do you want to do now? Because the heavens declare his righteousness. Romans 1 tells us that the immutable and eternal attributes of God are clearly seen. They are clearly communicated through his creation. So, you know what? I don't know. This is maybe 15 years ago. There's an app. It was cool 15 years ago. Now it's like boring. Um, and it would tell you, like, where all the different stars and, and constellations and 
galaxies and everything were all over in the sky at any point in time. You just put it on your thing and you're like, oh, cool. Well, you know, Andromeda is on the other side of the earth and, you know, all this stuff. Okay, that's cool. But what was really cool is they could, you could plug in a date and you could say, okay, I don't know, pick some date in history. You could plug it and it could tell you exactly where all the stars and all the galaxies and all the configurations of the heavenly bodies were everywhere in the sky at exactly that moment. You know why? Because God created an ordered universe. And astrophysics kind of works. And math kind of works. And at the end of the day, it's one of the evidences of the proof that an intelligent, rational, infinite, omnipotent, good, and all-wise being created everything. The heavens declare his righteousness. And then it says all the peoples have seen his glory. Whether or not they acknowledge it as his glory, Romans 1 tells us none are without excuse. We all know that someone stands behind all of these things. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Enemies are consumed. Lightning does his bidding. The ground quakes. Nature does homage. People see his glory. But there's one last group to specifically be mentioned, and it's found in verse 7. It is those who have openly rejected the revelation of God and decided instead to place their affections and their worship in another place. They are idolaters, verse 7. Let all those be ashamed who serve graven image, who boast themselves of idols. Worship him, all you gods. Here there are those singled out who have said, yeah, I've seen this or I've seen that, but but that's not really God, it's something else. Who have explained their own story, who have created their own narrative, or who have decided they don't even care to consider for the sake of their time that it's worthy to, to consider there's some being out there for their God of their own lives. And the passage says on the day when he comes in his commanding presence, they will hang their heads and they will say, I was a fool in the most violent, radical way possible to not honor the one true God of all creation. The end of verse 7 uh, is a, a bit of a debate. Worship him, all you gods. It's possible there that what is in mind are the idols, but I don't think that that's quite exactly it. That would make sense coming on the heels of what the first two lines of verse 7 are. But I think what's in, ver in view at the end of verse 7 is climactic. The first half of verse 7 is a statement about those who worship idols. The day when Yahweh comes and places his foot on the land and on the sea, Revelation says, and he holds up his hand and he swears and he says, time will be no more. On that day, the idolater will realize he's been a fool. But I think what's at the end of verse 7 is not the idolater, but actually beings, not idols. My translation calls them gods. In Hebrews chapter 1, it's very likely that he's quoting this verse from Psalm 97, and there he calls them angels. I think what's in view here are created beings that live in the heavenlies. In other words, angels and demons. 
and they are commanded in a climactic note at this point that they themselves are to worship God. The most awesome beings that if they were to come and stand before us, we would fall on our face and our knees would buckle and we would be afraid. And they say, I'm nothing. You should see the guy I serve. Now there is something. Worship him, all you gods. Which, by the way, is exactly what the angels do. Perfectly, joyously. And they would say to us, if you could see what I see, you humans. If, if you knew what I know. If you could be where I am. If you could stand where I stand. It is easy to worship if you have my view. And then there are the demons who will never worship. Although they will bow a knee one day, but not willingly. Worship him, all you gods. They one day who themselves are stunning in their being, they will bow and worship the one who created them. Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Now we get a two-part response from the people of God. The first is found in verses 8 and 9, and it is the response of worship. After all of the creation, after all other beings, material and immaterial, the land itself and the lightnings and all of this, Give us a picture of what God's reign is like. Now he turns to a response the psalmist does from the people of God. Verse 8. Zion heard and was glad. And the daughters of Judah have rejoiced because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, our Lord most high over all the earth, you are exalted above all the gods. I want you to notice here that, that the people of God here in verse 8 do exactly what the psalmist had commanded for all of creation to do in verse 1. There are two things that, that are commanded in verse 1. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let the many islands be glad. Another translation of be glad is exult. I'm going to use exult because uh, glad is a little vanilla, uh, and so I, I want to use it as a technical term, okay? In other words, let everything rejoice and exult in God. That's the command of verse 1, right? Guess what happens in verse 8? Now we look on the people of God. Zion, this is the eternal city where those who know him through Christ who have been forgiven by his blood and made his children will live with him forever in the new heavens and the new earth. And the daughters of Judah, in other words, these are the children, the towns, the places, all the peoples of the people of God. It says that they will what? Do two things. First of verse 8, exult. Middle of verse 8, rejoice. Exactly what all of the world is to do. And here in verse 8 are the people of God doing the very things that they were made to do. Do we sometimes get discouraged because we look on the world and they don't honor God? Question, would we expect them to? They are commanded to. They are made to. But it is the people of God who are conscripted as such. Where but in the church is the king of the universe crowned? Where but in the gathering of his people is the name of the Lord hallowed? Where but in the coming together of those blood-bought children do we find his praises are sung? 
and his son is honored and his words are feared there among his people. It's one of the reasons we gather. Because what we come to do together surpasses what I alone can do in my time with the Lord. Though the Lord honors it, though it is rich, but when we come together with God's people, the Lord of the universe stands and he says, this is what I made them for. This is why I did this whole creation thing. And so they could share with me both the Father and the Son and the Spirit together in unity, in fellowship, in relationship for all eternity. Where but in the hearts of his children is there glory for his person and glory for his works, not in the world, but amongst his people. Remember Jesus when he comes into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry, and all the crowds are screaming Hosanna, and the Pharisees are a little put out. They're like, hey man, what? Like, it's a little much what the people are saying. Jesus of Nazareth. It's kind of, it's kind of a little much. And Jesus is like, you really don't know who I am, do you? He says, look, you can try and quiet the crowds if you want, but if you do, the rocks will sink. So good luck with that. Friends, the rocks shouldn't have to sink because we are. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. And the people of God rejoice and exult in their, in their God. Why, by the way, do they do it in this passage? We don't have to guess because we're told. We're told the reason for their rejoicing. It's there at the end of verse 8. Because of your judgments, O Lord. Because of all that God is and all that it says that he will do in these previous seven verses being referred back to on the day when he arrives and in his person and who he is. See, his people rejoice when they know their God. By the way, I'm filling in your outline because I realized I think I forgot to say that. His people rejoice when they know their God. The world doesn't know its God. It's not the God. We were made to know our God. And when we know him, when we take the psalm right here itself and meditate on him, then we're moved to rejoice. And that's what it's meant to be. Part of the reason his people rejoice here in verse 8 is because of his judgments. Make no mistake, the Lord will reign one day and truth will be made manifest and he will come and he will judge the earth. And in that day, when he brings fiery judgment, the people of God will look on and we will say praise and glory and honor and blessing are due your name to the one who sits on the throne. Now, part of me finds that difficult, but I'm okay with that. Part of me finds, how am I going to rejoice in the Lord's judgments on the day that he comes? I don't fully know, and I can't fully understand, but it's exactly what Scripture says. We will say on that day, Lord God, you are all in all. You have done righteously. You have done perfectly. You have done all things well. And you are eternally good. And on that day, the people of God will rejoice and exult, even as he brings deserving judgment. And the daughters of Judah have rejoiced because of your judgments, O Yahweh. This is why the Lord is so good in his word to tell us the certainty of such a day. 
so that we can plead with those who don't yet bow their knee and say, there is a day coming, my friend, and I love you too much that you would not turn to him. Do you know this being? Do you know him as your own? Psalm 97 is, uh, by the way, an interesting passage to uh, try and break down. Uh, I could read five different commentaries this week, and I will get five different outlines of Psalm 97. But I'll tell you what has convinced me most. Um, there are two things that happen in verses 8 and 9 that I think set this off, and they are the explanation of uh, essentially the heart of all that's going on. The first I've already mentioned, and that is that the very thing that's commanded in verse 1 is now done in verse 8 by his people. And so I think that's a, uh, an intentional move of the scripture here to encourage us. But secondly, I want you to notice something happens in verses 8 and 9 several times that don't happen before or after. They only happen here in these two verses. Zion heard this and was glad, and the daughters of Judah have rejoiced because of your judgments. This is the first time in the psalm that the psalmist speaks to God. You go, no, that can't be right. He's been talking about God the whole time. Yeah, yeah, he's been talking about God the whole time. It's the first time he speaks to God. Because of your judgments, O Lord, for you are the Lord most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. And fitting that it comes at this point where his people, bought by blood, standing under covenant, living and being able to approach through the dark clouds only because of his grace. He has bid them to come, that they come and they speak directly to him and they say, you are Lord. You are God over all the earth. They don't just stand off at a distance and, and honor a, a, a distant dictator. They come and they say, you are Lord and you are above all gods. Do you know him? Do you know him as your own or is he just an idea? Because, friend, if you're here today and maybe even you graciously nod your head about all these things, sure, there's a God and Sure, I guess he'll do all that stuff, and I suppose he's like that, but you don't know him. If you can't call out to him in the middle of the night, if you can't come to him in the early hours of the day in prayer and rejoicing over the dawn of the new morning, if you don't know him as your king and your savior, then the judgments are yours in this passage. But he bids you to come. And he who purifies is able, regardless of your sickness and shortcoming, to make you holy and make you his. He, not because of any merit of yours, he having paid the price now through Christ, all the merit of his brings you to himself. So that you can say, Lord, you are Lord most high over all the earth. You are exalted even in my own heart. Praise him, to know him rightly is to praise him. To see him rightly is to be moved and exult in him because through Christ we are now not those falling under his judgment. And that's exactly what we do. We will praise him first for being just and secondly we will praise him for his grace towards us. And actually I don't know, maybe the order is reversed but I know we'll praise him both on that day. The first response of the people of God of this description of the reign of the Lord is to exult and to rejoice. 
And then the second part of the response is their happy holiness. A glad holiness marks God's own that he keeps. A happy holiness or a glad holiness marks his own that he keeps. That's what we find in verse 10. Hate evil, you who love the Lord, who preserves the souls of his godly ones. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown like seed for the righteous. Gladness for the upright in heart. Be glad in the Lord, you righteous ones, and give thanks to his holy name. The first word of verse 10 is a bit shocking. Hate evil, you who love the Lord. It's a bit surprising that it comes to us at this point. But what the passage is telling us is that part of learning to love also means that we need to grow in our capacity for hate and grow in our refinement of our hatred. Now, you can say, I don't know, man, I've been on social media this, this week, and I've seen a lot of people that hate. And if that's what it means to love God, then, man, it looks to me like everybody loves God because a lot of people are out there hating things that they think are evil. Yeah, it's a little more than that, isn't it? Hate evil, you who love the Lord. I think what it means is first to loathe the evil in ourselves ten times as much as we see it in anybody else. Because if we truly love the Lord, then stirred affections will actually grieve our soul when we sin against our holy, glorious, lightning-commanding God. And we'll say, Lord, I'm a fool. What was I thinking? I hate that I would do that, Lord. Depart from me because I'm a wicked man. I can't stand in your presence. And so this is also a fitting, rejoicing, and exulting for those of us who know the Lord, to fortify ourselves against evil by fighting the battle in our very own hearts. If we will do that, in fact, then I think we become a powerful force for good for hating evil in other people's lives, coming to them in prayer and saying, my friend, I just want you to know, I hate that you do this, and can I tell you why? It's because it's destructive. I hate this for you because I love you. I hate this before you because, because God has something for you so much better. And when you sell yourself to this, it is so not what he wants. And I know and I care because I hate it when I do it too. Hate evil, you who love the Lord. Does God actually hate stuff? I thought that God was love. No, he does. First, God hates pride. And that'll be an easy one for me to start with this week. I don't know about you. To begin to hate what pride does in my own life, condescending, looking down my, my nose, thinking I'm better, and whatever else it produces in my heart. And coming to him and saying, Lord, I love you. Why do I do this? Why am I this way to, to others whom you have made, beautiful creations of yours that I somehow think I'm better? Why do I do this? Lord, I hate that I do this. Help me. Proverbs 8.13, 8, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance in the evil way and the perverted mouth, I hate God himself speaking there in the middle of verse 18, telling us he hates pride and arrogance. Does God hate? Sure, he also hates duplicity. He hates falsehood and deceit. Uh, Proverbs says, uh, differing weights are an abomination. And you're like, I don't get that. 
Because in that day when you went to market and if you wanted to buy 28 grams of something, then they get out the scale. It didn't come with like, you know, vacuum packed in a seal and it was stamped, you know, net weight, whatever. If you wanted 28 ounces, you put it on the scale and they put all the little weights that measured 28 and they kind of made it even. Differing weights is using this measure in this situation and then turning around and using a different measure in a different situation. And the Lord says, I hate that if you do that to your advantage, to take advantage of people. So in the same way, when I look on someone and I use a measure of what I think is right of them, and then I turn around and I use a different measure for me because I know I'm, I can be bad sometimes, but I meant well. That person's a jerk, but I'm nice on the inside. And I know I'm nice on the inside. It's a differing measure. And the Lord says, that's an abomination. And I hate it. Well, there's other things you could consider, and it's actually a very helpful study because those things which the Lord hates, he is deeply committed to sanctify in us, isn't he? He is ever ready to do his work in helping us in those areas. You can jot down if you want, if you decide you want to do this study, lots of places you could look. But Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19 gives a quick laundry list, and I'll just read it for you. Proverbs 6, 16 to 19. There are six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven, which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. Yeah, if we are going to love the Lord, then we are going to need to grow in the clarity, the refinement, and even the capacity at times of our hate. And so the second response here to a God who reigns, part of the rejoicing and the exulting is to weed out in our own lives those things which dishonor him and to do so gladly. A happy holiness, a joyful pursuit of righteousness because we so want to be like him. Now to that end, to the end of accomplishing what he has in the first line of verse 10, now there are four or five or six very strong encouragements from the Lord that are going to help us do it. He preserves. He delivers. He gives light. He gives gladness. And he lets us give thanks and be righteous together with him. The middle of verse 10 says he preserves the soul of his holy ones. Another translation is just the word keeps. Alec Motier has given his extended translation of this, and I really like it. The word for keeps is in the emphatic position in the Hebrew. I know, sorry, grammar. But for this reason, Alec Motier says, it's hard to translate it exactly, but he gives this phrasing. He simply keeps the souls of his godly ones. What I like about that is it's this sense of it's what God does naturally. It's who he is. He so keeps his own. He preserves and protects them that even in a world gone crazy, when they choose to hate evil for the sake of loving him, he keeps them. It's just simply what he does. It just simply is who he is because he cannot lie. He can't go back on his promise. He can't change his character. He can't reject one of his own children whom he has made his own by blood and by covenant and by promise. He just simply keeps them. 
Now, I mentioned that this is the third in a series of three psalms we're looking at this summer that talk about God's covenant love, his chesed. And um, if you're keeping score at home and you're listening closely, you're like, wait, Frank, I haven't, I haven't heard the chesed yet. Like you trained me good, and I know if I hear the word loving kindness, I know ding, 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 that's that word in Hebrew or whatever your translation has for it, royal love or whatever. You're like, it, it isn't anywhere in the verse, anywhere in the, in the chapter. First, um, no, it's not. But the concept is there in spades. Because when we get to verse 8, and he singles out his own who know him personally, they are those who fall under his covenant love. And so rather than being subject to the wrath that we deserve, because of covenant love, we will stand by and rejoice when he is revealed one day. The concept is there in spades, but the word is practically there. And it's there in the second line of verse 10. Who simply keeps the soul of his godly ones. The word there for godly ones is chasidim. The word means godly ones. It's, it's a noun, and that's the description. Um, but the word smells like covenant love. Chesed is covenant love. Chasidim is his godly ones or his holy ones. And that's the way it often is when we move from one language to another. You have a word that means something, but then you also have a word that smells like something else. And it's difficult when you do translation to try and get all of that in one word. Sometimes you get lucky. Well, this is one of those words that you can't get lucky with, but it's there if we were reading it in the original. And here's the point of all that. God simply keeps those who are his godly ones because he has loved them through commitment. Not godly because they have done it perfectly, but his chasidim, those who fall under his covenant and his committed love. He just simply keeps those because he's committed himself to do that. Well, you could go on through the rest of the psalm, and I'll leave it for you if you choose to as a prayer exercise, rejoicing in the fact that he reigns over all the earth, and he keeps you, and he delivers you, and he gives light like he gives the dawn. Have you had that time where you feel darkness and you thought, God, I don't see light? Lord, I, I don't have this rejoicing. Focus on him who reigns and then even just ask, give this light. Sow gladness in my heart. Plant seeds of joy in my life. Help me to go about my day in resting in you. Be glad in the Lord, you righteous ones, and give thanks to his holy name. Why? Rejoice. Let all the earth rejoice. Rejoice. Because the Lord reigns.